This morning, Philippians chapter 1, continuing there, we'll be picking it up and we're going to pick it up again in verse 18 and go through 26 this morning. I want to start by just reading verse 18 of Philippians 1. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I want to again open the word of prayer just to nothing else collect my head. Okay, let's open. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we, we truly want to focus in on your word. And Lord, may all other distractions be dismissed from our minds. Father God, we just, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we sung about this morning, your forgiveness. And Lord, we just pray that uh, this would be a time of learning and edification for your saints. And Lord, through all of this and all of what we do today, that you would indeed be glorified. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, <clears throat> again, this obviously is completing what uh, the, the overall thought of what we started last time. But I want to back up a little bit too, and I want to want to just restate a few things that were stated last week. One is proclaiming Christ was Paul's goal in life. I mean, from his very from the, his conversion right on through his eventual death at the hands of the Romans under Nero. But regardless, all the persecutions, all that went on in his life, he never ever stopped preaching the gospel. He never, ever stopped proclaiming Christ. I want to go back and take a look at, um, at Paul in his ver- at the very beginning in the book of Acts chapter 9. And I want to just kind of, as a way of introducing the lesson today, I'd rather than me coming up with something very wise and I'm sure stupendous, I'd rather let scripture do the talking this morning and uh, <clears throat> and Leah, because I'm looking this morning, my, the focus that I got through last, the passage from last week, the passage from this week is the fact that Paul is literally obsessed with preaching Christ, preaching the gospel. And I'm hoping there's some that say, you know, evangelism is more caught than it is taught. Well, if you're going to catch that from anybody, Paul's the guy to catch it from. He was the master. Other than Christ himself, Paul, I'll tell you, he was uh, amazing. Acts chapter 9, verse 18, we're going to pick it up. We're all well aware of his Damascus experience where uh, the Lord met him on the, on the road and knocked him off his horse. But I want to go right Right immediately following that, let's pick it up in verse 18 of Acts chapter 9. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who was who in, in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Again, right from the very start, I mean, the scales fell off his eyes. You remember he's blinded on the road. He went out there. He stayed there in Damascus for several days. And immediately in those days that he was there, he kept preaching and preaching and, and proving that, that Christ was the son of God. Now remember that term son of God is a term of deity. He's speak, speaking to Jews primarily. And the Jews understood that. The name Son of God refers to deity. Remember what Jesus was accused of? 
like they wanted to st- one, on one occasion when they wanted to stone Christ, he, they said, well, we don't stone him for messing up the Sabbath. We stone him by calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So every time we read in scripture, Jesus with the title son of God, that's a title of deity. And that's how it was understood in that day. So that's how we need to understand it now. Now, <clears throat> now this letter of the Philippians was written in Rome while imprisoned there. Yet, his imprisonment really started in Jerusalem, two years prior to his arrival. In that two-plus years of incarceration, Paul took every opportunity to, to proclaim Christ. I mean, like I say, right from the beginning, right on through to the day they chopped his head off. Paul was preaching the gospel to, to, I, I, to anybody to listen. He even, he even preached to people that wouldn't listen, wouldn't care about it. He preached to everybody. Let's look at that journey into Rome. I want to pick up a few things. Let's move forward to Acts chapter 21. We can set there for a moment. Acts chapter 21. You're in Acts 9 now. So we move forward. Now, now again, his journey again, like I say, begins with his arrest in Jerusalem under false charges. Now that, that begins in, chap, in chapter 21, verse um, <clears throat> 27 and following. We're not, I'm not going to read all of this. It, that we would do nothing else this morning. Although it really is a great read to sit down and read this whole account from his arrest all the way into Rome. It's, it, is a great, it is a great read. There's so many, so many things going on. I just want to pick a few things out of there to show you that, again, Paul imprisoned. I mean, he stood before people that basically wanted to kill him and had the power, at least somewhat. And Paul, just, he, just stood, he just stood strong. He stood bold. And that's going to become important when we get, in, when we get back to Philippians. The, the fact that Paul often asked prayer for boldness. A man that bold asked for boldness. Maybe that's where he got it. Prayers of the saints. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So we have, in Acts 21, if, we, if you begin at 27, you can read through there, you'll see that the Jews seized him in the temple for what? Preaching what he preached in, in the, where was he? On the road to Damascus, right. What he preached in Damascus, he was preaching in, in Rome. Wake up, brain. I didn't take my ginkgo this morning. Okay, so they seized him. Then, then um, uh, in the temple, then an angry mob literally dragged him out of the temple with the, with the full intention of beating him to death. And it literally says that in this account. And then, But providentially, word of this got to the commander... That's the Roman commander that was um, <clears throat> in Jerusalem. Now, a commander is a, an individual that was in charge of approximately 1,000 troops. A centurion would be in charge of 100. So this commander then got word of it, and he then took Paul to the army barracks before a riot broke out. They were that steamed. They, they wanted him. They wanted him bad. And we know from reading... Uh, other historical accounts in scripture that the Jews well look what they did to Stephen right look what they did to Stephen Uh, they were about ready to do the same thing with Paul now in in Acts 21 let's pick it up in verse 30 just to set a little bit of a context here Twenty-one thirty, and all the city was aroused and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut and while they were seeking to kill him a report came up to the commander of Rome of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion and at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul then the commander came up and and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and he was be- and began asking who he was and what, what what he had done but among the crowd some were shouting one thing and some another and when he could not find out the facts on the account of the uproar he ordered him to be brought into the barracks 
And when he had got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind him, crying out, away with him. What does that sound familiar? The crowd was railing away with him. And it still means the same thing as it meant in our Lord, when our Lord, when they yelled at our Lord, they wanted him dead. And then from this point, from this point on, throughout the, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, all the way into verse 28, where we find Paul in Rome, he was under Roman guard this whole time, this whole time. Now, later, Paul was moved to Caesarea. Now, this is a very interesting, not an interesting, but a very insightful um, topic here, in, uh, statements in Acts 23, Acts chapter 23, beginning at verse 23, where the account around Paul being moved, all right, Acts 23, 23, and he called to him, he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers <clears throat> ready for, by the third hour, and now the guy that called his order, that was be the commander, and, uh, and and take him to Caesarea with with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They also they also uh, to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And and he wrote a letter in this form. Now what we're going to see here is the actual letter of that commander. And we know his name here from verse twenty six. Here's here's the actual letter. Claudius Lysias. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when, I, and when I was informed that there would be a, a, a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring, to bring charges against him before you. So, so the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked for, for, from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, which would be the, the guardhouse there. And so now here he is in Caesarea. Paul will stand before Felix. And he spoke to Felix, and quite frankly, it, made, it, it freaked Felix out. It got him scared. What Paul, the message Paul said got him scared. And, it, uh, and that's in, in chapter 24. And, uh, <clears throat> and another account, another, the end of that story, I want to read in, in chapter 24, verse 24, where it says, someday, now remember now, Paul is incarcerated in Caesarea. Felix doesn't. Doesn't want to mess with him until the, the people show up, his accusers show up. But in but in the, been a period of time here, but in verse 24, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As he was dis, as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix Felix became frightened and said, "Go away for the present, and and I will find time. I will summon you." I find the rest of this interesting. At the same time, too, you know, he on one hand he was frightened, but yet on the same time, verse 26, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used the send for him quite often and converse with him. Interesting. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? But verse 27, but after two years had passed two years after two years had passed Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and and wishing to do the Jews a favor Felix left Paul imprisoned I'll tell you life life was cheap back then too 
And then now Paul before Festus, uh, verse, in chapter 25, verses 9, again, he's going to start 25, 9 through 12. We'll, just, we'll pick it up there for that one. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, just like Felix did, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And see, Paul knew better. I mean, it's just, it would be the same kind of, it could very well be the same kind of situation where Jesus was brought before Pilate <coughs> and Pilate, not wanting to cause the Jews a problem, crucified Christ, right? Well, Paul was being, excuse me, <coughs> being set up for the same thing. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as you very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I, I do not refuse to die, but if, but if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So, and here he is, basically, <clears throat> earmarked to be on his road, on the road to Rome. Except for one more thing. Agrippa is going to hit town, and this is the one I really wanted to share, because this is very classic Paul here. And Paul is going to stand before King Agrippa in Acts 26. And I'm going to read from 26 to 32. It's, <clears throat> it's actually... When I read it without speaking, it, went, it read quicker than uh, uh, it, you might think for that many verses. But I want you to kind of see how in this whole discussion where he stands before Agrippa, who really doesn't have any authority to sentence Paul, but uh, Felix, or I should say Festus, wanted Agrippa to hear about Paul. He wanted some input from Agrippa, actually. But notice when we read this how cleverly Paul weaves the gospel through this conversation. Let's pick it up in verse 12 of Acts 26. While thus engaged as I was, and again, he's recounting his Damascus experience. While thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with, the, with authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when, and when he had all... When, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet, for, the purpose, for, for, the, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will, will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have <clears throat> been sanctified by faith in me. Faith in me. Jesus speaking, faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Uh, <clears throat> and also I have obtained help from God. I, I stand to this day testifying both to the small and great, stating nothing <clears throat> but what nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ would was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, 
Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and, <clears throat> and, I, and I speak to him also with, with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might, be, might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king arose, and the governor and Bernice, <clears throat> and those who were, were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I know that was a long bit, but I think that gives a fitting introduction for what is going to be looked at here in, in Philippians this morning. And we come back to Philippians, and we're in a place now where Paul is eventually does make it. And that's not talking about all the shipwreck, too. We didn't even get into all that, where he was in the shipwreck. He winds up on Malta. He preaches the gospel there. I mean, he speaks to the men on the ship. I mean, he's, everywhere he is, the gospel is being presented. And now imprisoned in Rome, and it says in East where it says in Acts 28, 31, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcome, welcoming all uh, who, who, who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So now we go back to Philippians and pick it up with that background. I think it might help us. Or at least add, add to what is being written in Philippians. Now, there's one one thing that is supreme for Paul in verses 12 through 18 that we looked at last time is the same as that which is supreme in 19 through 26. Namely this, Christ being proclaimed over and over again. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> Philippians 12 again, chapter 1, verse, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And we can jump down to verse 18, where it says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this, is, this small turn out for this, for this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not put to shame, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And we'll stop right there for now. Again, back to verse verse 18, Philippians 1. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, Christ proclaimed. That We mentioned that last time, but Christ proclaimed is synonymous with the gospel itself. That's what the gospel is, proclaiming Christ. The gospel is, if you want to just shrink it down to the smallest common denominator, the gospel is... Basically, absolute faith in the person and work of Christ for one's salvation. That's the gospel. 
Now, a lot of that needs to be explained, but that's it. Belief in the person and work of Christ. No, no human works, no other, anything else. It's the person and work of Christ. Now, why is this cause for rejoicing? Which, quite frankly, it's through the gospel that people are saved. Also, proclaiming Christ brings glory to both him and the Father. Now, where it says, and this, and in this I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice, that first one, I rejoiced. Paul was so committed to the advancement of the gospel, he can say this, this, this even in chains and being harassed by his detractors, he can say, I can rejoice in this. I can rejoice in this. And then he goes on to say, yes, and I will rejoice. Now that second one is an emphatic statement following the initial I rejoice, taking his rejoicing from the present actually into the future. I will rejoice. It It needs to be understood as I will continue to rejoice. And I'm going to continue to it to do that. Now, we move down through this passage and from 19 through 21, what we have here, what we're going to be seeing is, yet you know, remember, Paul is, remember, he's got, he's eventually going to stand before Caesar. Okay, he's going to stand before Caesar. So the possibility of being sentenced to death is there. Although we're going to read throughout this that he has the full expectation of that not happening. So let's just take it as he delivers it to us. Uh, verses 19 through 21. Let's go ahead and read those. For I know that this is this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall be, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether in life or by death, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is is gain. Now, where he says in verse 19, I know, oida is a Greek word there, it means to know something with certainty. Okay? <clears throat> and what does he know? Well, verse verse 19, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Well, what does deliverance mean? Well, deliverance is another term that some of you folks might recognize, the word soteria. All right? That's the word commonly uh, translated salvation, which is primarily used in the New Testament for the Salvation, as in the doctrine of salvation, the salvation from sin and death, you know, as in, well, in Philippians 1.28, it's used that way, where it says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So, again, salvation in the uh, sense of being saved, eternally saved, this word is used that, that way most often in the New Testament. But here, though, it's used in, in more of a, a, the, the generic term of it, where um, <clears throat> here the word is used in the sense of being delivered from his present condition uh, <clears throat> of waiting to stand trial. And, and he was convinced that his present circumstances were temporary. And one way or another, by life, or by death, he would be delivered. And it's interesting, he keeps putting the possibility of death in there because it was a possibility, although he was convinced that that wasn't going to take place. But the possibility was there. And again, and he did, when we get to verses 25 through 26, we're going to see that he fully expected to get out. And we also know that he did. But this statement here where it says that whether by life or by death, uh, that's very similar to Second Timothy four seventeen through eighteen. I'll, I'll just read it to you. Where this would be the next time Paul gets imprisoned in Rome, and that's where he wrote Second Timothy. And there he actually was on death row. He did not survive that one. And he wrote and he wrote this uh, to Timothy. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that th- that through me the proclamation might be. F- might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this was Paul's 
attitude behind this statement, whether by life or by death. He looked at either one as deliverance. We're going to see more of that as we move through this, this section. The fact that Paul, Paul looked at death as deliverance. Paul looked at death as deliverance. Paul looked at being let out of jail as deliverance. I'm delivered. Either way, I'm out of here. Okay, And that's how he viewed it. And <clears throat> Paul's deliverance would be accomplished by two means. First one, in verse 19, it says, through the prayers, through your prayers, or the prayers of the Philippians. Matter of fact, their prayers were another way, I believe, that they participated in the gospel. Remember back in verse 4 and 5, it says, where Paul was thanking them always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now I mean they were not only did they support him financially I'm totally convinced they supported him through prayers they supported him through their prayers and you know Paul often requested prayer from the churches he really did I'm just going to just bring out a few examples here you, you can write you don't have to look there I'm I'm going to be kind of shooting through these so you won't have time to look anyway. But like in Romans 15.30, he writes to the Romans, you know, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, brethren, pray for us. And that's that whole verse. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may, may spread rapidly and be glorified. Well, Ephesians 6.18 and 19 says... With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness, with boldness, the mystery of the gospel. And then Colossians 4.3 says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of christ for which i have also been imprisoned remember colossians was written from rome at at about the same time as philippians so there you have it the now the second means he's looking at is the provision of the spirit of jesus christ interesting this is just another one of the many terms for the holy spirit and I think why he selected that title, Spirit of Jesus Christ. A lot of times you hear the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Jesus. I think because, you know, <clears throat> his whole conversation now is centered around proclaiming Christ. And so using that title kind of links the Spirit of God. Remember, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God. So he's linking the Holy Spirit in this ministry of um, <clears throat> presenting Christ or, or promoting Christ or living for Christ, preaching the gospel. All, th- all three members of the Trinity are involved in this process. Now, the ministry of the Holy Spirit brings much comfort to also in times of trouble. I'm going to go back, take a look at Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verses, uh, beginning verse 11. Obviously, another letter <clears throat> written by Paul, some about four years prior to his imprisonment there. Romans 8, 11 through 18 says this. And this, Roman, this chapter 8 is really a whole, this whole chapter is majors on the work of the Holy Spirit, really. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to the fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if, which could be translated in this verse since, 
So I'm going to do it there. And since children, heirs also. <clears throat> heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, since indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that my sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that, um, and then back to Philippians 1.20, where it says, where Paul says here, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ shall be even now as exalted in my body. Due to the prayers of the saints and the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul, I believe, was had that earnest expectation and hope, those two go together, that Christ will be exalted in him, and in him my body is a phrase pointing to that. Now, earnest expectation, or sometimes could be translated in your Bible, eager expectation, and that earnest expectation, now that term in the papyri, which was the common everyday writings of that first century period, refers to the it's interesting, the stretching forth of the neck. <laughs> it's like, picture with the neck, but put a head on it, you know, the stretching forth of a neck so somebody can kind of, you're looking out there in anticipation of something you're eagerly waiting for coming. That's what this word comes from. It's kind of an interesting word. It's not used, I think, but only one other time. And so that had that earnest expectation and hope. Now, hope means expectation or confidence. Now, remember, hope Faith, hope, and love, hope in terms of our salvation, does refer to the expectations of the promises of God being fulfilled. We use that, so we often use that word in a different sense, like expressing somewhat, some degree of doubt. We say, gee, I hope so. You know, I hope this happens. Well, hope in the soteriological sense, soteria, right? In the salvation, in the sense of salvation, that hope means we're expecting this. We're not doubting this. We're hope means gee, I hope I hope we get to heaven. No, if you're a believer, I expect to get there. The, the hope is what what we're longing to. Do. Hope gives us joy. Hope gives us confidence. Hope gives us peace. See, hope that is a hope is a byproduct of true saving faith. So it's meant in that sense here that Paul fully expects, he has fully hope in the sense that I'm, I'm, I, I fully expect to get out of here. Now, it says, um, what Paul is, uh, what is Paul's expectation? Well, the first one right here, the, this immediate context here is, the answer to that, what Paul is expecting is that I will not be put to shame in anything. I will not be put to shame in anything but that with boldness, okay, with boldness. Does that ring a bell? Remember we read it in that prayer that Paul uh, requested in, to the Ephesians, which all, was also written, was one of these prison epistles. And I'll just read verse 19 again. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And he says... I am confident, Philippians, because of your prayers and the working of the Holy Spirit, I am confident that I will indeed speak with boldness, as he always has, as he always has. And, it's, and then it says, goes on to say that Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, with all boldness, you know, exalted... Uh, <clears throat> Exalted in my body. Now that refers to his entire persona. Okay, his entire persona. Much like what we read in uh, like Romans 12, 1. Uh, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a, and holy sacrifice, a, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's how it's meant that with our entire being, we would be devoted in, in, in doing the ministry. And he goes on to add, whether by life or by death. See, now again, now Paul was a man who faced the possibility of death virtually every day of his life. I mean, he was out there. We had, he had people after him. 
I read this last time, but I'm going to read it again just to bring forward. And this is from 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27, where Paul, in defense of his apostleship, for there were false apostles in Corinth at the time, trying to move him out and put themselves in, the, in, their, in his place. Paul writes this as speaking to his qualifications as being an apostle. He writes, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. He's talking about those false apostles. I'm more so. I, I'm, I'm more of an apostle, he's saying. In, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Other than that, it was a piece of cake. Other than that, it was falling off a log, right? No. I mean, that's what Paul's life was like. That's what Paul, I mean, keep that in mind as we move further on into this, uh, into this passage. That, uh, you know, he go, and then the phrase where he says, whether by death, by life or by death, is naturally linked to verse 21, which reads, for, to me, to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, he says, to live is Christ which to live as Christ means to continue proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the gospel. To die is gain. Speaking from personal, from him personally, to die is gain. Why? Because what we just read in 2 Corinthians 11, that's out of his future now. That's gone if he's, if he's in heaven, right? Now, Paul now speaks, and we're going to have to hurry a little bit here. Paul's now is faced with somewhat of a dilemma. And we read about that in 22 through 24, where he says, but if I am to live on in, this, in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. You know, life and death, there's the choice. Life and death is the choice. And he's, if, you know, if, if he had the power, and, he, we, and Paul knows, I mean, he wrote the, literally the book on the sovereignty of God in the New Testament. So Paul knows about the sovereignty of God, and he knows what, you know, Putting this in human terms, if I had to choose, this is a tough choice for me. This would be a very tough choice, life or death. Think about that, life or death. Um, <clears throat> and he goes, but, and then he goes, but, uh, but I'm hard-pressed, verse 23, for both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, to live on the flesh, okay, as opposed now flesh obviously means here um, living, not flesh like living a sinful life, right? We know the difference here. Just to live on, period, to have breath. Now, Paul's dilemma here is, we have already seen it, is defined by two choices. Choice number one is verse 22, live on in the flesh, stay alive, not die. Now, and he's saying this, you know, that he's soon going to be put in front of Caesar, well, okay, what's the upside to that choice, to live? Well, the upside is, verse 21, Paul's attitude toward the ministry. says, for, for me to live is Christ. And Paul was so dedicated, so dedicated to spreading the gospel, so dedicated. And he got great joy out of that. And to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, verse 24. So... His desire to minister pulls him one way, okay, pulls him one way. What's the downside of staying? Well, he would continue to suffer persecution for the gospel. That's a given. That's a given. I mean, just go back and read what he's been through up to that point. Now, we have here, he says now in verse 22, I don't know which one to choose. He says this again, knowing God is in control, and ultimately, it's up to him. But again, Paul's choices, in many, in both of Paul's choices, we're going to see, have stronger upsides 
than downsides. Now, choice number two is verse 23. Basically, to depart and be with Christ. That is to depart this world and go, <laughs> go into heaven. What's the upside to that one? The upside is Paul would be in heaven with his Lord. Strong upside, right? And then what comes with that? You know, just start thinking. No more pain and suffering. Perfect, uninterrupted joy. Living in a state of holiness. No more temptation. Enjoying perfect worship. And I mean perfect worship. Read Revelation 4 and 5. Just perfect worship. Isaiah 6, perfect worship. We're sitting there worshiping God with the angels for crying out loud. What a wonderful place to be. And to top that all off, being able to see God in all his glory. I mean, that's the upside to uh, departing. The downside is to, de- to depart now would uh, leave Paul's ministry unfinished. And we know from just from the fact of history that Paul did not die here in this one, but he was there for two years and then released. All right? And then just to kind of wrap this passage up, the concluding statements he gives in this section in 25 and 26, and convinced of the, well, verse, I'm going to pick it up verse 24 because it, 25 plays right off it. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And I think by extension, all the churches he ministers to, all the churches, and convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Once again, Paul is convinced he's going to be staying around. And as it turns out, he does stay around for about another four to five years. Okay? Now, the reason for Paul to remain, and I'll just list them right off here. <clears throat> like in verse 25, says, well, that the faith in, <clears throat> where it talks about the, that they continue with you, with you all for the progress and joy in the faith. What's the faith? Well, the faith is the totality of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, which, by the way, includes the Old Testament. Don't throw that out. But if you get, you read, you look at the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, they're all over the Old Testament. So don't throw that out like some foolishly do today. Now, what is this faith? Well, as Jude put it in Jude 3, this is the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the faith, the true faith, the gospel, and everything that comes with it. And within the four to five year period that Paul, that Paul did stay on this earth, many other things were accomplished. For example, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus were written in that period of time, which would be the last of his letters. We could have a discussion about Hebrews later, but that was the last of the letters as, that we can confirm. And then verse 26, I want to read a better translation than I have in my version here. Verse 26 would be better stated, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Now, <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, the confidence by being placed the more, that more correctly way is not in Paul, but in Christ Jesus in Paul. You see the difference? And mine had it flip-flopped, where it sounded like in, in me, in Christ, what? what? But the, the more correct way to say it, this, <clears throat> that my boasting may abound in Christ Jesus, in me, through my coming to you again. In other words, the confidence isn't in Paul, but again, but it's in Christ Jesus, in Paul, working through Paul, right? So that's, that's, the, that's the perspective here. Paul's eventual release would increase their confidence in Christ working in Paul, much like his imprisonment caused the brethren to be more courageous. We saw that back in verse 14. Like the fact that here he's in prison, but yet the gospel is not being limited at all. As a matter of fact, you read more of the story, you go back in the book of Acts, and uh, you can see, number one, the gospel is going throughout the whole praetorian guard, so everything was, everything was fine with the Romans, right? 
And then the Jews were coming in, Jewish leaders were coming in, talking. They weren't all accepting, but uh, as they mentioned, well, we haven't got any letters about you, so they were kind of neutral on him. They were kind of curious about him. And so he had an okay relationship, even with them. Okay? So everything was going fine, and the gospel was moving forward. And so now here we are at the end of uh, our, our section today, and my conclusion is short and sweet. Paul's life of service to the Lord is the highest human example of integrity and faithfulness I know of at the, on the human level. I, I tell you, it's, it's amazing. Well, you know, to some, to some he's an example. He's definitely an example to me. Or maybe, maybe I fall in this camp, depending on how good I'm at at getting the gospel out there. To others, perhaps his life, by comparison, is a rebuke. Compared to Paul, how are we doing? How are we looking? You know, individually. I know I don't measure up to that. And to measure up to Christ, well... I don't even measure up to Paul. Okay. Um, and then again, Paul is it's kind of like, almost like his battle cry I pick up here. He says, when he says <clears throat> that little statement, for to me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Couldn't we say that? Is, that? is that what we have in our hearts? That is our desire for me to live is Christ. I'd like to close in a word of prayer now. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. We especially thank you, Lord, for the tremendous testimony that Paul has for 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 all of us. And Lord, you know, we know where we are in our in our life and we know we all need much work. But Lord God, we again we just Thank you that we have your word, and we thank you that we have all these accounts, these, these historical accounts of men like Paul and Peter and, and others, so many others that you have brought forth and that you've worked through. And, Lord, we know that as we are faithful in our, in our lifespan here, that, Lord, we can do great things, too, through you and your power. Again, Lord, we just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.